Chapter Two of the Annals of Anne by Kate Trimble Sharper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. You hear a heap of talking these days about the divine mission of a woman, especially from long-haired preachers that don't believe in ladies' voting, and another heap of talking about the rights of women from the ladies themselves. There was so much of it going on last winter when I was at Rufy's that I told some of it to Mammy Lou when I came home. She says it's every speck a question of dishwashing when you sift it down to the bottom. The women are tired of their job, and the men are too proud to do it unless the window shades are pulled down. I don't blame them for being proud. They have something to be proud of, for they can do exactly as they please from wearing out the seats of their trousers when they're little to being president when they're big. When I was right little, I used to think that the heathen over the sea that threw the girl babies to the crocodiles were doing it in hopes of killing out the girl breed, so the little new babies would have to be boys. A heathen is anyone that lives on the other side of the map from us. Another good thing about a man is he can say, Damn that telephone! Rufy says it whenever he's busy and it bothers him, but Cousin Eunice can't. All she can do is to have a sick headache when she gets worn out. I know one tired lady whose husband is a busy doctor and whose baby is a busy baby, and lots of times the lady has to stop up her ears to say her prayers, and she hardly ever has time to powder her face unless company is coming. But, sick or well, she has to answer that telephone. She says it's a disheartening thing to have to take her hands out of the biscuit dough when the cook's brother has died and go to the telephone in a big hurry where folks tell her every symptom of everything they have, from abscess on the brain to ingrowing toenails. And she never gets the baby well lathered in his bath of a morning but what some of her lady friends call her up, and she has to sit and talk for politeness sake till the baby almost drowns and gets soap in his eyes. She tries to believe in new thought, though, and some days she goes into silence. This means wrapping up the telephone in a counterpane and stuffing up the doorbell until it can make only a hoarse choking noise. Then she spanks the baby and puts him to bed, and that house is like the palace of the sleeping beauty. Yes, women certainly seem to have a hard time in this life. Even when they marry rich and live in a hotel and never have any babies, they seem to be worse tired than the ones that warm bottles of milk and peel potatoes. Some of them that Cousin Eunice knows are called bridge maniacs, and they shrug their shoulders and say, what's the use, if you suggest anything to them? I've been home from Cousin Eunice's now for two weeks. For the stylish private school I went to up there lets out soon. Mammy Lou says I'm the worst person to break out in spots she ever saw, and one of my spots last summer was keeping this diary, which I did for a while very hard and fast. Now a whole year has passed and it's summer again, and I am so lonesome that I believe I'll write a little every day and tell some of the things we did at Rufy's last winter. If any of you grandchildren who read are afflicted with that trouble of doing things by fits and starts, you may know who you inherited it from. I'm not really to blame so much for neglecting you, my diary, for all the time I needed you most last winter you were lost. This is a terrible habit that all my things have, getting lost. 
My garters do it especially, and I have to tear great holes in my stockings by pinning them up and then forgetting to stand stiff-kneed. Rufy told Mother last fall that I was so precocious, which I looked up in the dictionary and admired him very much for, that I ought to be where I could have good teachers. So after he and Cousin Eunice had been married long enough to be able to bear the sight of a third party at the breakfast table, they wrote for me to come, and I went. I was kinder disappointed to see them looking like everyday folks again, for the last time I had seen them they were looking as they had never looked before and never will look again. For Rufy says he'll be hanged if anybody can get him to appear in that wedding suit any more. But oh that wedding! And oh that wedding march played on a thundering pipe organ that makes cold chills run up and down your back, thinking what if it was happening to you? When the time comes for I will, you nearly smother. You're so afraid they might change their minds at the last minute and embarrass you half to death right there before all those people. They didn't change their minds, though. Nor since then, either, I honestly believe. They married safe and sound, and Cousin Eunice's favorite book is now 1001 Tried Recipes. And Keats is lots of times covered with dust. I got this far last night when Mammy Lou passed by my window on her way to her house from the kitchen and stopped long enough to make me go to bed. She says it takes a side of sleep and a passel of victuals for a girl of my age, and I don't have enough of either. I sure gonna tell Miss Mary how you set up of a night, she said, very fiercely, but she couldn't shake her finger at me for it took both hands to hold the big pan she had under her apron. And as for eatin', why, red bug eats more, and such truck. Candy and apples, and fried chicken, and fried Saratoga chips. Fries never was no good for nobody, at the gawky age, no how. It takes boils to fatten them. I promised I'd go to bed and eat nothing but boils to please her if she wouldn't tell father and mother how late I sat up. So she promised. She never would tell anyhow. I believe the next thing I wanted to mention about was the theaters that they used to take me to on Friday night when there wasn't any lessons. I just love the theater. I believe if I don't decide to be a trained nurse, although I'm sure that's what I was cut out for, I may be an actress. When they used to tell me pitiful tales at Sunday school about the heathen, I was sure I wanted to be a missionary to Japan. Mother used to take me to a tea store with her every time we went into the city to buy things we couldn't get at home, and the walls were covered with pictures of Japan. I will never forget how blue the sky was, nor how white the clouds, and it seemed the loveliest country in the world to me, except home. And I would look at Mother and wonder how she would feel if I told her that some day I was going to leave her and Father and sail away to that beautiful land where the poor, ignorant people didn't know how to wear corsets nor eat hog meat. Of course, they needed somebody to tell them what they were missing, and I was eager to be that one. That was a long time ago. I know more about Japan now. I know more about America, too. Dr. Gordon said one night last winter that if some of the missionaries were to go all over this country and tell folks to open their windows and stop murdering their babies with candy and bananas, they would do more good than trying to teach the Japanese so much. He said he didn't know which was more the heathenish, to throw children in the river and let them have a quick death, 
or stuff them on fried meat and pickles and let them die by slow torture. The mothers are hard to teach, he says, because they don't more than leave the doctor's office with a poor little pale baby than they meet an old woman who tells them not to let the child be doctored to death, to feed him. They will tell the mother, didn't I have eleven? And everything I et, they et. He told us so many stories of murdered babies that I got to feeling like I'd prefer being a nurse in a day home. I love babies, and Dr. Gordon has the loveliest eyes. But I haven't got to him yet. Speaking of the theater, I got to see many notorious people on the stage this winter. Rufi said I would get a great variety of ideas from the best plays. I did. I got a great variety of ideals, too. One time, he would be tall, fair, and brave with a Scotch name like Marmaduke Cameron or Bruce McPherson. Then the very next time I'd go, he'd change his looks and disposition. I loved some of the operas, too, especially Il Trovatore. I wished the singers were slender, though. It hurts your feelings to have the voice that rang from that donjon tower, belonging to a great fat man with no head to speak of, and what he has consisting mainly of jaws. Of all the songs on the record, not phonographic record, next to Dixie and La Paloma, I believe I love, ah, I have sighed to rest me. The words to this are not so loving, but the tune is so pitiful. I wish my name was Dolores Lovelock or Anita Masala, and I could get shut up in a tower. I have a girlfriend in the city, and every time we write to each other, we sign the name we're wishing most was ours at that very minute. Her last letter was signed, Undine Valentine, but I don't think that's half as pretty as Mercedes Fischadwalla. It wouldn't hardly be worthwhile for me to change my name now, because I change my mind so often. I'm a great hand to start a thing and then branch off and start something entirely different such as learning how to make the table walk and pyrography. Cousin Eunice said one day when she looked around at the things I had in my room that it reminded her of Pompeii when they dug it up. So many things started that never would be finished. One of the things we enjoyed most at Cousin Eunice's was walking out to a lovely old cemetery not very far from her house. It is so old and so beautiful that you're sure all the people in the graves must have gone to heaven long ago. Along in April, when the iris and lilies of the valley are in bloom, and the birds and trees and sky all seem to be so happy, you look around at those peaceful graves and you don't believe in hell one bit. You think God is a heap better than folks give him credit for being. But I hope this will never come to Brother Sheffield's ears, for he thinks you're certainly going there if you don't believe in a hell worse than the Standard Oil Company on fire. While I'm on this kind of subject, I want to tell something that Rufy said last winter, but I'm afraid to, for if Mother ever saw it, she would get Brother Sheffield to hold a special meeting for Rufy. I might risk it and then lock my diary up tight. Rufy said one time when I remarked that I liked St. John better than St. Paul, no wonder, St. John's liver was in good working order. Cousin Eunice and Rufy are still very earnest and study deep things even if they don't read Keats so much. They know a jolly crowd of people that call themselves Bohemians. 
Lots of nights some of them would come to Cousin Eunice's and we would cook things in the chafing dish and discuss the deeper problems of life. They're not real bohemians, though, for from what they said, I learned that a real bohemian is a person that is very clever, but nobody knows it. He follows his career eating out of paper sacks and tin cans and sleeping on an article that is an oriental couch in the daytime. Then finally some rich person finds him and invites him to dinner, and this is called discovering a genius. When our friends would come, we would talk about the Brotherhood of Man and the North Pole and such things as that. I listen to everything I can hear about the North Pole, for I never have got over the idea that Santa Claus lives there. And the Brotherhood of Man means we're all as much alike as biscuits in a pan, the only difference being in the place where we're put, and we ought to act accordingly. Some of the young ones talk a great deal about how children of the nation ought to be brought up, and they tell about what their family life is going to be like though Rufy says most of them haven't got salary enough to support a cockroach. I think the Brotherhood of Men. Business is a good thing to teach children. For I wasn't taught it, and I shall never forget my feelings when I first learned that Christ was a Jew. I thought it couldn't be so, and if it was so, I could never be happy again. So the Bohemians are going to teach their children that the Jew is our brother, and that he hath eyes, and if you prick him, he will bleed. These are their own words. I'm sure the Jews are lovely people, since I've seen Ben-Hur on the stage in the picture of Disraeli. That's all I know about him, and I'm not sure how to spell that. I'll skin my children if I ever catch them saying sheeny in my presence. And we make limericks. We don't make them in the chafing dish, though, as I thought when I first was there. A limerick is a very different thing from what you'd think if you didn't know. It's a verse of poetry that's very clever in every line. Among the Bohemians I liked best were a married couple and Anne Lisbeth. Besides having the same name as mine, Anne Lisbeth is a beautiful foreign girl who was living across the ocean when she was born. Her last name is something that Disraeli is not a circumstance to and I'd never spell it, so I won't waste time trying. She's going to get rid of that name pretty soon, and I don't blame her, although Cousin Eunice says it is a noble one across the ocean. Still, I don't blame her, for the man is a young doctor, Dr. Gordon, that I've already mentioned, and perfectly precious. Next to a prince, I believe young doctor is the most thrilling thing in the world. Anne Lisbeth, lived near Cousin Eunice, and they were great friends. She and her mother were very poor because they got exiled from their home for trying to get Anne Lisbeth's father out of prison, where the king had put him. Oh, the people across the ocean are so much more romantic than we are in this country. Now father wouldn't ever get put in prison in a lifetime. Anne Lisbeth has to work for a living. She does embroidery, exquisite embroidery, and lace work that looks like Charlotte Rousset. She is the kind of looking girl you'd expect to have a dressing table covered with silver things and eat marshmallows and ice cream all the time. She is what Cousin Eunice calls a lotus eater. This liked to have worried me to death at first, for I misunderstood it and imagined it was something like eating roaches. I wasn't going to blame Aunt Lisbeth for it, even if it was like roaches, for I thought maybe it was the style in her country across the ocean. 
what is one nation's style would turn another's stomach, and everybody likes what he was raised on, even Chinese rats and Limburger cheese. It was very romantic the way Anne Lisbeth met Dr. Gordon. She had gone down to the florist one slippery day to spend her last quarter for a white hyacinth to cheer her mother up when she had the good fortune to slip down and break her arm. Dr. Gordon happened to be passing at the time in his automobile, and he carried her to the hospital and fixed the arm. He said white hyacinths were his favorite flower, too, so he sends them to her and her mother every day. Poor Dr. Gordon. He's having a hard time to make a living like every other young doctor. He says sometimes he has a whole month of blue Mondays come right together. And he says every time he happens to wake up with a headache, he also has a blowout in his best tire and gets a notice from the bank that he's overdrawn the same day. I liked him extremely well myself for a while, and he seemed to like me. He called me his little sweetheart. But I soon saw that a little sweetheart has to take a big back seat when there's a grown one around. Mother and I have been laughing all day about a little affair that happened here last winter while I was away at school. After Christmas, Mother and Father went back to stay at Rufy's with me for a few days, for they said the place was so lonesome when I left they couldn't stand it. Of course they met Dr. Gordon and Anne Lisbeth, for we were always at each other's house, either to learn a Mount Mellick stitch or to play a piece from a new opera. Mother liked Anne Lisbeth's sweet ways so much that she said she just must come down and make her a visit before she thought of getting married. About the time for the first jonquils to bloom early in February, Mother wrote that they reminded her so much of me and made her so lonesome that she wished Anne Lisbeth would come on then. So she packed her suitcase and went. Everybody knows how people in a little place will look at a stranger that comes in because they're so tired of looking at each other. So they stared at her from the station clear up to the house. Now city people never get any enjoyment out of staring unless they see somebody in trouble, such as an unfortunate young man with his shoulder to the wheel trying to repair a puncture by the side of a muddy road. Then they stare, and giggle too. There were several young men at the station that day, and as Anne Lisbeth went down there not breathing to a soul that she was engaged, they came near losing their minds over her beautiful skin and foreign accent. The one of them that seemed to be most impressed was a bore. No, he wasn't just an everyday kind of bore that asks you if this is your first visit to that place and tells you afterwards that he never has been so impressed in his life on short acquaintance. I've heard Cousin Eunice talk about them, but this man wasn't like that sort of bore. He was a perfect auger. Many a time when he has dropped in to see father of an evening, and I would have to put my book down for politeness' sake, I've sat there and pinched my face, the side that was turning away from him, till it was black and blue to keep awake. Pinching your arm or leg wouldn't have done any good with this man. You had to pinch up close to your brain. All the time Anne Lisbeth was there, he showed so plainly that he was coming to see her that mother and father would go out and leave them alone. Though father said he felt so sorry for her that he promised always to do something to run him off by ten o'clock. Every man knows how to do these things, I believe, such as taking off his shoes loud and telling mother to wind the clock in a stagey voice and making a great racket around the front door. And when the young man would hear these signs, he would leave. 
Right in the midst of Ann Lisbeth's visit one day, she got a telegram from Dr. Gordon saying that he was coming down that evening and leave on the midnight train. This is a sure sign a man cares. He couldn't stand it any longer. Well, this Mr. W, I'll call him that for fear his grandchildren might feel hard toward mine if it ever got to their ears that I had spelt his name right out, had said he was coming over that night to bring her some new records for the talking machine, to try them. But when Ann Lisbeth told Mother about Dr. Gordon coming, Mother telephoned him, Mr. W, I mean, not to come till the next night, when Father would be at home, as he wanted to hear the records. Sure enough, Father did have some business out in the country that afternoon and didn't get home until about ten o'clock that night. He heard voices as he passed the parlor door, and thinking, of course, it was Mr. W, decided that he would run him off right away so poor Ann Lisbeth could get some sleep. Mother was already asleep, and there was no way for him to know who really was in the parlor. So he took his shoes off and slammed them down in vain, and rattled out the ashes, and wound the clock, and coughed, and sneezed. By this time he was awfully sleepy, for it was a cold night, and he had had a long drive, so he went to bed and to sleep. Along about twelve o'clock, father woke up, and seeing a light still in the parlor, tried to get mother roused up long enough to ask her what else she supposed he might use besides dynamite to run that fellow off. Mother was still so sleepy that she didn't say anything, so father got out of bed and opened his bedroom door. There were voices talking very easy in the parlor, so father, thinking that surely Ann Lisbeth would be ready to commit suicide by this time, decided he would walk to the front door and open and shut it real loud, knowing that would run him off, without waiting to slip on his trousers. Now father is long and lank, and wears old-timey bobtail nightshirts, winter and summer, and all the rooms of our house open square into that one big hall, and there are no curtains to hide behind. Just as father reached the front door and began tampering with the lock, out walked the happy pair from the parlor, and they must have had a mighty tumble off of Mount Olympus, or Pegasus, or whatever that place is called. They jumped back as quickly as they could, but of course they couldn't get back quickly enough to suit all parties concerned. Father finally got the door open, and to keep from having to pass the parlor door again, he ran clear around that big rambling house barefooted, and with the February moon shining down on him, and the February wind whistling through his little bobtail nightshirt. The noise of so many doors opening and shutting made Mother wake up in a hurry. And being used to Father's ways of leaping, then looking afterward, she realized what had happened. Poor Father came around to the side of the porch and scratched on the bedroom door for Mother to let him in. By this time, she was so near dead from laughing that she could hardly speak, but managed to use her voice a little just to pay him back for doing such an idiotic thing, she said. She opened the bedroom door a little so Dr. Gordon and Ann Lisbeth could hear, then called out in a loud, distressed voice, Oh, Dan, have you come home in that condition again? Everybody that knows father knows that he never drank a drop of anything stronger than soothing syrup in his life. And when he had met Dr. Gordon in the city, they hadn't been able to get off the subject of prohibition. They both were so temperate. It was a terrible thing to be called in that condition 
before him. But mother let him in, and Dr. Gordon caught his train back to the city where he sent father at least two dozen funny postcards on the subject of that condition. End of chapter two. Read by C.J. Ploke.